So turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23, the very end of chapter 23, verse 37, and we'll read into chapter 24. Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 7, Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? This morning I want to focus on the end of chapter 23, moving into the opening of chapter 24. Now recognize that these, once again, these chapters, uh, they're not divided by uh, divine order. Um, this is the way that this has been ordered uh, over time to help us see um, the sections of Scripture. But when these things were written down, they were written in a format of, of the history that Matthew was giving here. And so uh, you see there is a moving on in the text from verse 39 to verse 1 of chapter 24, and yet there's still connectivity that's there in these passages, and we need to recognize that. For when Jesus says in verse 39, For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's speaking prophecy there in its context, and then he moves to talk about the destruction of the temple, which is a part of the fulfillment of that prophecy. So this morning, our theme is, the temple was a means for worship, not an object to be worshipped. The temple was a means for worship, not an object to be worshipped. We need to understand as we ended uh, last week that the Pharisees reduced the temple to general revelation because they worshipped the matter instead of its revealed meaning and purpose. Now I want you to think about that for a second. What we've seen with the Pharisees is a reduction of the temple from its context in special revelation to just purely general revelation. Many of you have been somewhere on a beautiful morning. You've seen the sun begin to rise, as we say, and you've seen the, the orangish pink colors in the sky, and you've looked at that nature, and you've seen that, and you've gloried in it and said, the beauty that shows the glory of God. Maybe you've been on the lake and you've seen the sun set one evening. Maybe you were uh, sitting in a park or you were hiking somewhere. Or maybe you're sitting in a tree stand and you're hunting and you're looking at the beauty of God's glory as you're sitting there watching all of nature happen around you. And you say to yourself, wow. But that nature in and of itself is just general revelation. It is not special revelation. It is not that which is saving. And it's not even in its fullest sense revealing that which is saving. It's revealing the glory of God. But you see what the Pharisees had done, and they had simply taken the temple over a period of time and reduced it to natural revelation. The thing itself had become beauty, it was beautiful. The temple was beautiful. But it was no longer that which was a means to reveal saving revelation. 
And when God gave the tabernacle, when he gave the Ark of the Covenant, when he gave the temple, and he gave the sacrificial system in the temple, and he gave the priest work in the temple, all of that, the bringing in of the goats and the bulls and the doves, all of that was a means to show saving knowledge to come. And the Pharisees had reduced all of that to just natural revelation. They looked at the beauty of the temple. Wow. And they even made it a point of saying, hey, we built that. It's what many people do with nature today. It's a natural revelation, but they worship the nature itself. When Jesus speaks these words, He's giving recognition to something from verse 39 into verse 2 that you've so twisted this that you've missed the whole identification of the object to be worshipped. And that is God himself. Number one this morning, Jesus left the temple with his prophetic words. Now there's good news this morning. I have only two main points. There's bad news. I have several sub points. Good news, number one. Jesus left the temple with his prophetic words. Matthew 23, 39. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This will be the last thing he says. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Notice in this verse, there's a phrase here. Jesus says, from now on you will not see me. One writer says, in the modifier, from now on, the word now must be interpreted to include the immediately following days. He goes on, the meaning is that after this week of the Passion, Jesus will not again publicly reveal himself to the Jews until the day of his second coming. Now we know there was this brief transition period in Acts 13, and yet at the same time, he's saying to the Jews, you're not going to see me and recognize me properly until the day comes where you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is quoting the Old Testament. Jesus is going to to point to something near future in its context that's important, but he's also pointing to something far future, his second coming, the final second coming. So he wants them to see there's something important happening here because the phrase from now on includes immediate days and the ongoing future days. We need to recognize the idea of the passing opportunity to the Jews. Recognize the idea of the passing opportunity to the Jews. I want you to think about this from the historical context of the passages that we've read this morning. The northern kingdom, it had been prophesied to them for decades and centuries. If you will not follow me, what will happen? If you will not abide by what I'm telling you, what will happen? If you continue to worship idols, what will happen? And what happened in 722 B.C.? The northern kingdom is gone. It's done away with. It's obliterated. So Micah comes in warning. As Robin said to you very plainly and importantly, he comes in warning to the southern kingdom and says, see what happened? It's going to happen to you. If you, don't, if you don't get this right, if you don't stop worshiping these idols, if you don't stop taking what I gave you and twisting it and turning it and turning away from me, you need to recognize in temple worship there was always the means of the Messiah. The temple worship was not about the blood of the bulls and goats, it was always pointing forward to the Messiah. And they had a recognition of that. 
And when you come to the passage in Haggai, if the temple meant so much, why did the people have to be spurred on to rebuild it rightly? So if, it, if it's really that important to you, what do you do with something? You take care of it and you make sure you get it done, right? If there's something that someone gave to you and it's really, really important to you, you take care of it. Well, after the temple had been destroyed in 586 B.C., there's an opportunity to, to rebuild the temple. God is gracious to them to allow them upon promise to go back into the land and to begin to rebuild the temple and to have the sacrificial system and to have it done rightly. Everything they said they had yearned for while they were in captivity, right? Oh, woe is us, God. We don't have the temple. We don't have right worship anymore. Please, God, give it back to us. The opportunity comes for them to get it back. And what do they do? They squander it. Now they have to have a prophet come to them to say, Hey, you're given an opportunity here. Let's get back to building the temple. Come on. Woo! If you really, really understand something and you really, really have a desire and a care for it, what do you do with it? People of God were showing that they really didn't care about the temple. They really didn't care about temple worship. What they really wanted was just to have their freedom back their way. Because you see, that's what they had before the temple was destroyed. They had the temple, and they had their freedom their way because they still had the high places, the places of worship to the Ashtaroth, the places of worship to Baal. They still had all of that. They were just saying, we just wanted to go back the way it was. The point of the captivity and the destruction of the temple in its first time was that it would never go back to the way it was. It's kind of interesting what Jesus says then. From now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know what he's saying? Recognize the idea of the passing opportunity to the Jews, to you. We need to see it rightly. He's saying, you all have had an opportunity to see the Messiah. Everything that was promised has now been born before you. This Messiah, me, I've walked among you. I've been right here. I've been teaching. I've been healing. I've been doing those miracles which I was... Uh, which I was doing in signs and wonders to fulfill the prophecy. It's been right here. You've had an opportunity to see the Messiah. You've had an opportunity to hear the Messiah. And you've had an opportunity to know the Messiah. When Jesus speaks these words, he's saying, the opportunity has been right here, right now. And you've passed it by. In application, it tells us very plainly that the Lord gives opportunity for people to turn back to Him. The Lord gives opportunity for people to turn to Him or to turn back to Him. The Lord gives opportunity for people to see their sin for what it is, and to deal with it. There are also times after opportunity, after opportunity, after opportunity, that it's been passed by. This is a moment of judgment. He's pronouncing this judgment on the Jewish leaders and the people to say the Messiah has been right here. The opportunity to see, hear, and know him is right before you, and you've passed it by. So we need to recognize the idea of the nearing judgment or the near future judgment. There's a far future judgment, which we'll get into as we speak about the Olivet Discourse on the whole. And yet even right here, there's this near future judgment. Recognize this idea is even in this phrase, even as moving into the Olivet Discourse, 
sometime later in chapter 24. In a sense, the Lord Jesus is saying sometimes opportunity passes you by and there is still hope. In another sense, he is saying sometimes opportunity passes you by and there is no hope. There will be Pharisees who heard him speak. There will be Pharisees who watched him perform miracles. There will be Pharisees who were around him in conversation. And while he was among them, there was still hope. But he's saying, when I'm no longer among you this way, and you keep going the same direction, and you die in that thinking that you still had, there will be no hope. It's a message to us not to take the Lord's Day lightly. Every Lord's Day is a message and a time to worship and be near, to hear and think. Because we never know when that last day may be. The last day of our living, our breath, or the last day before the Lord Jesus returns himself. Well, not only Jesus left the temple with his prophetic words, number two, main point number two, Jesus left the temple in his prophetic ruins. Jesus left the temple in his prophetic ruins. Sometime after the Lord had pronounced this judgment upon Jerusalem, his lament over Jerusalem, it says Jesus came out from the temple how long that was, it probably wasn't too long because he had been teaching in the temple. This is after he had cleared the temple out. It may have been 10 minutes, it may have been an hour, it may have been a couple hours, but sometime right in there afterwards, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away. Now get the picture. He's going in and just waxed the place clean. He's pronounced seven woes to the Pharisees and Sadducees. He's now said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Look at who you are, Jerusalem. I'm going to leave your house desolate. The whole of who you are as a people, and I'm going to destroy this temple, and now he makes it plain. He's pronounced this in these terms. And as he's leaving and going away from the temple, his disciples come up and they point out the temple buildings to him. You can imagine this has thrown the disciples for a loop, right? They're still... Let's, let's not give the disciples, you know, first of all, don't act like, oh, poor, dumb, stupid disciples. You and I have the benefit of the rest of the New Testament, right? So we get to look at these things and, 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 and have some context. They're right in the middle of this. And they've heard Jesus pronounce all of this. And they've heard the woes and they've heard Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And they've heard, ooh, this is going to get bad. And now all of a sudden they see Jesus coming out of the temple and they're kind of, you know, going behind him like, what, what in the world? And they come up to him and say, look at the temple. Here it is. Look at it. Herod rebuilt this big, beautiful marble temple. It's, it's amazing to look at. I mean, this thing's huge. Don't you see the beauty of this? I mean, come on now. And you have to remember the temple structure is not small. It's not that it's simply just tall, but it's a large structure now that has multiple areas in it. And it takes up a, a wider area than it even did in, in Old Testament times in that that context of, of Solomon's temple. What was rebuilt later by Herod is this just huge edifice that, that takes up large uh, space, but it also has its, its tallness to it. 
and the beauty of all of it on the inside. It even has a Gentile court in it where now Gentiles can walk through and they can see all of it. Much like we go and look at historic things today and we get to walk through and see the beauty of it and go, wow. Well, the Gentiles now can walk in and they can look around and go, wow, this Jewish temple, look at the beauty of this place. I don't know what it means and I don't care, but it sure is pretty. So all of that can happen in this huge, huge edifice with all of its grand glory. And the disciples are going, man, Jesus, you're being pretty hard here. Look, don't you see this, Jesus? Jesus says, do you not see all these things? Now, do you see the Lord Jesus question here? You're asking me, don't I see something? And the Lord Jesus says, do you not see all these things? Now, he's not asking them, do you see the temple? He's asking them, don't you understand? Do you not see all these things that you've been hearing that I've been teaching you all along the way? Do you not see all these things in which I've been saying to these Pharisees and Sadducees? So Jesus left the temple in his prophetic ruins. He said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As we begin to unfold all of that discourse, we will recognize that a large portion of chapters 24 and 25 have to do with something near future to these disciples and the next generation of disciples. It has to do plainly with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. And Jesus here is prophesying, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. This had to be very, very hard for the disciples to hear because they were listening to words of destructive prophecy. They were listening to words of destructive prophecy. Earlier, Jesus had wept over Jerusalem and now he decries her. When Jesus says all these things, he's signifying all of Jerusalem, and at the same time, he's signifying the temple specifically. After he had wept over Jerusalem and decried her, after he had cleansed the temple, he now dethrones the temple. Everything to a Jew was wrapped up in the temple. All of life was wrapped up in the temple. But it's sad because the temple had become merely a natural revelation object of worship. And it had lost its primary means and purpose before the people to be the revelatory way for them to see the coming salvation of the Messiah. They had lost it. It says to us, even in the modern church, that we can lose the context of the whole purpose of what we do as Christians. There was a time where, in the Protestant church even, they lost the proper perspective of what worship is, what are the means of worship, the means of grace. What do they do? What, what are their purposes? The Roman Catholic Church has shown this over centuries where buildings and edifices became more important than the actual worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. They built huge, huge structures Beauty that's just mind-boggling. And yet what was being 
said and spoken in those buildings had no measure of biblical authority or no measure of gospel to it at all. But it was everything. But it was everything to the Roman Catholic to have their big, beautiful building. You know, just a few years ago, you may be reminded that uh, of the great cathedral in France that we saw it on TV. It just burned to the ground. France is an extremely secular society. It's, it's, it's even a small percentage of Roman Catholic. It's even smaller percentage of Protestant, like less than 2% Protestant. And Roman Catholicism is even small. It's a secular society. It's, it's a non-God society, according to them. And yet when this cathedral was burning, people are just wailing. It was just a cultural building, but it meant something to them for what? They had lost the perspective on even what a gospel or what the gospel is. What is good news? The Lord Jesus is saying the same to the disciples here. Don't lose your perspective on what the gospel is. Salvation doesn't come through a building or through natural revelation. It only comes through special revelation. And they were watching and looking at that special revelation right in front of their face. Do you understand that every time you open the Bible and you read God's Word, you're reading the actual Word of God? I'm not telling you to take the book and make it an idol and begin to pray to the book. I'm telling you, though, God, by the power of His Spirit, He deals with His people through His Word. Some people have taken our English translations and made the King James Version an idol. I'm telling you, no, it matters what it says. This is why we need the Word of God. So we don't lose sight of what true worship is and who it's about. You know, we've gradually moved in our country from a country that had a real Christian identification and background to a country over time that the Bible was important and most people kind of had an identification of the Bible and its importance to now we don't even have that. But you realize there was a, there's a gradient move there. You, you realize that even in the 1940s and 50s, that even before the 60s hit, in the 1940s and 50s, there was already a move away from the real, true gospel and importance of God's Word. Churches were already leaving that because they had left it in the early teens and the 20s and there had begun a, a social gospel movement to where the actual Word of God and who Jesus is didn't matter. We were going to affect people by doing things socially. Lord Jesus was dealing with the disciples to let them know this Jewish nation, culture, people have become such idol worshipers that they not only worship the false gods in false ways, they now have taken the true ways and turned them into false worship and idols. We must be careful to keep the truth of God's Word right before us that we recognize what the true way of worship is and what the true object of worship is. watching a ball game with the boys some days ago. And this commercial came on about Jesus loves all of us or something like that, which I'm not against that. 
But the way this commercial couched it was as if Jesus was a person who didn't care really about anything other that we were human and that he would love us no matter what we did or who we are or no matter the way we thought. Just all come to him. Don't You don't need change. You just need to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, love me as I am. So now I find out this commercial is put out by a large group of churches and one large church in particular has millions upon millions of dollars behind it. It's a church, they say. But what have they done? They've taken the right object of worship, turned the Lord Jesus on his head, and now they're worshiping him the wrong way. So they turn Jesus into a false idol because he's not even the Jesus of the scripture anymore. Jesus is not saying to the disciples or to these Pharisees, just be who you are and I'll accept you as who you are. That's not what he's saying. What was Jesus' first message in his ministry? Repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why do you need to repent? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus has said that now the temple will no longer cast even a shadow over the people of Israel. Physically? Literally? And even spiritually? Because I'm going to take this temple and I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to rebuild it in three days. We are in need of a reality of what it means to take even that which is about true worship and turn it on its head and turn it into false worship. We can take the good things that God has given us and turn them into false idols. And Jesus says, don't do it. Don't even do it with me. Jesus came and he came to deal with sin because sin is against him and the Father and the Spirit. And Jesus hates sin as much as the Father does. Jesus doesn't accept you as you are. He calls you to repent and believe. The good news is is that he changes dead sinners by the power of his Spirit. He can take the liar and change the liar. And the liar will be a person who desires not to lie. And when the liar does lie, they repent. He changes the liar from a liar in Satan's house to a believer in his kingdom. gospel is about change. It's not about staying the same. The Pharisees, all they wanted was things to stay the same. Don't change me. Don't change me. I got my thing going here. I got it my way. Don't change me. If you think the gospel is not about changing you, then you've missed the point of the gospel. We see in this context, and we're not going to fully develop this this morning. This is going to be fully developed over weeks ahead. But the disciples did not comprehend the prophecy. In 3a, it says, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Well, first of all, note that they approached Jesus sometime later. This means that when Jesus said this to him in verse 2, that not one stone will be left upon another which will be torn down, 
They couldn't fathom that. So they had to take a little time to do that. So later on, when they're at the Mount of Olives, they've left the temple. They've left Jerusalem. They're on the outer part of the city out there on the side of the Mount of Olives. And here they are. And the, the disciples, they, they wait until then. But not only that, as he, he sat on the Mount of Olives, they approached him in private. Now, normally when, when somebody's been teaching and you want to ask a question, but you don't want to ask it openly and you come to them in private, generally speaking, not all the time, but generally speaking, what you're saying is, I don't understand this, and I didn't want to say everything out loud in front of everybody else because I didn't want to kind of admit I didn't understand what you were talking about, but I don't have a clue to what you're talking about. So can I come to you privately and you tell me what you meant by what you said? And this is what the disciples did. They approached him in private. Because they didn't want to announce to everybody around, hey, Jesus, what are you talking about? We don't know what you're talking about. Because they're supposed to be disciples, right? Well, when they approached him privately, they did not comp comprehend the prophecy, but the disciples asked two questions regarding this prophecy. All right, if this is so, if this temple's going to be torn down, even though we still can't really fathom that, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Those are the two questions. Now, you need to recognize those are big questions. <laughs> I mean, that's like big-time stuff. And we still struggle with it today. We'll spend the next several weeks opening up these two questions from the rest of Jesus' discourse on the Mount of Olives. Because these questions are all important. Firstly, the disciples' two questions shape the whole of the Olivet Discourse. Whatever we're going to hear Jesus say is about answering these two questions. But secondly, these two questions shape the context of all of Christian hope. These two questions shape the context of all of Christian hope. When will these things happen? When is it that we'll see you again? What, is it, what does it mean when you're coming? What will be the sign of your coming? And... There's going to be an end of the age, apparently, because you're saying the temple's going to be gone. You, you have to realize, to the disciples in their mind, for the temple to be destroyed and, and for the house to be desolate, for Jerusalem to be gone, they're thinking, it's all over. As Americans, if someone prophesied the major capital federal city of the United States is going to be completely obliterated. Don't applaud. Somebody announced that in prophecy to you. Think for a moment before you, you know, before we go off into our political We would think the world was coming to an end. As Americans, we would not know what to do with that. We know America. If there was a prophecy that some great nation was going to completely obliterate everything we know about America, we can laugh in the moment, but the honest reality is we would be going, Deep breath. So the disciples hearing this about the temple, deep breath. It's got to be the end of the age. So when is it coming? When is the end coming? You see, because for them now, all of hope is gone in the temple. It's going to be destroyed. 
So what hope is left? Only the hope that are in the words of Jesus Christ. That's good stuff right there. What do we have left today? Only the hope that are in the words of Jesus Christ. Stay in and with the word and the Lord and the word will stay with you. Joshua 1.8. Keep with it. We'll develop these questions further as we go along, but I'll leave you with these three observations this morning. Number one, the temple was a place to reveal God, not a thing to imprison God. The temple was a place to reveal God, not a thing to imprison God. Essentially, the Israelites have become like modern culture. They wanted to put God in a box, and that box was in the temple. And they wanted to keep him in the temple and say, you're there, and then while you're there, God, we'll go out here and do what we want to. We'll build the high places. We'll worship what we want to. Oh, no, by the way, when we get involved in all these cultures, even though you've told us not to uh, intermingle marriage with these other nations because we might be led astray, you know what? doesn't matter. We're not only going to intermingle and have all these different marriages with these other cultures. We're going to have polygamy. And we're going to do everything that you told us not to do, but you just stay in the temple, God, because we've got you there in the box. It's the danger for any Christian to put God in a box. He cannot be imprisoned. He will not be imprisoned. He is the one true living God. He is everywhere at once. He knows all things simultaneously not one thing is beyond him or greater than him he is immense therefore he alone is to be worshiped and he alone is to be obeyed obeyed secondly the temple was a place to reveal the messiah not a replacement messiah the temple was a place to reveal the messiah not a replacement messiah Pharisees and made the temple their Messiah. And they did what they wanted to in it and with that Messiah. They had even created their own ways of how they would bring in the actual animals for the sacrificial system and the ways that they would bring that in went directly against what God had told them. They had even taken further what the false priests of Malachi had done and they had twisted it further on its head. The modern church has done the same thing. They've taken the objects and ideas of what they want and they've made that their replacement Messiah. The modern American church is really, I don't even think it's in danger anymore. I think it's, it's really happened. It's lost the very essence of the good news and the gospel. We're so busy trying to placate and make everybody feel better instead of telling them. We're all sinners. I'm not just condemning you. I'm, I'm saying me too. Oh, you hypocrite. Yeah, I know I am. I, I, yeah, I am. Yeah. Yeah, I got all kind of problems. I'm trying to tell you, though, there's something great here. Jesus Christ came onto this earth and he lived and he died for sinners like you and me. And the only reason I'm not the same hypocrite I was a long time ago is because Jesus saved me and I've been given by his grace, God's grace, this graciousness into me that changed me. I'm no longer the hypocrite in denial. I'm now the struggling sinner recognizing my sin for what it is. It's against a holy God. The good news is God changes dead sinners of all stripes. God can change the heart of the cross-dresser and the transgender person. God can change the heart of the homosexual. God changes the heart of the liar and the deceiver. God changes the heart of the adulterer. But he changes it. 
He conforms that heart to a heart that loves Him and worships Him through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need a replacement Messiah. We need the Messiah revealed. It's been revealed in His Word. Lastly and thirdly, the temple was a place to reveal grace, not the dispenser of grace. The temple was a place to reveal grace, not the dispenser of grace. Grace didn't come through the temple in the sense of the temple itself had anything to do with it. It was simply the means by which God would reveal His grace to sinners. That there was grace in the actual sacrificial system shown to them. It was a type, a foreshadowing of what was to be in future context. But when those sacrifices were made, God was saying, Grace may be given. Grace may be granted. The Israelite was supposed to believe that when that sacrifice was made, that blood was shed and it was put onto that altar, that what they were seeing was God revealing to them that His grace is real. But instead, many times they just came, paid for some animal to be sacrificed. And they thought that the grace was actually in what they did to bring the animal. In what they did to come to the temple. That the temple was going to be the dispenser of grace instead of God being the revealer and the dispenser of grace. If you think by simply coming to church every Sunday that you make yourself right with God, then you don't understand worship. You don't come to this place to think there's saving grace by the fact that you showed up today. You need to understand you showed up today because the saving grace is given to you through the Word, by its reading, by its preaching, by the singing of those psalms and hymns and songs that are in the context of God's Word. That the grace is given by the power of the Holy Spirit accompanying the Word of God to deal with our souls. Even as you're about to come to this very table, are you coming because you think that because you come to that table, somehow you're doing something to bring grace to yourself? Are you coming to worship that God brought grace to you through remembering His Son? Please don't turn worship upside down. Put it in its right place. And remember, the true object of worship is the Lord Jesus Christ. The temple will be torn down because the Lord Jesus tabernacled among us. Look to Him to be saved and none other. And please do not look to yourself because you cannot save yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've been merciful once again to give us your word. We pray that you would work in us by the power of your spirit according to the truth of your word that has been spoken. Those things of truth, Lord, take them and use them for your glory by the power of your spirit alone. Deal with our souls as only you can. We ask this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.